People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's being ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. This is the Chantal Baker Show and I am Chantal. Now some of you may have seen this week that my face and other various pictures were plastered right across the front page of the New Zealand Herald. It involved a story that was dramatic at its best and downright false at the worst, but Interestingly for me, was actually towards the end, where the writer tried to insinuate that I may have been paid by Russia or China to make videos and produce content online where I talk about my concerns with the New Zealand government. Now this got me thinking, what would China and Russia really want to happen in order to destroy the West? Over in China and Russia, they're teaching manliness courses. Here in the West, we're trying to tell men to be more feminine. Over in Russia and China, they've got a gold-backed currency that they're going to. Here, we're busy printing inflation and hoping for the best. Over in Russia, Putin has said that he does not embrace the LGBTQ agenda publicly. Although people privately are free to do what they want, they know that they need more strong men. They also know that this is imperative for their birth rates, which have seen a decline, and they know that in order to sustain their population, those birth rates need to go up. Here in New Zealand, we've had one of the worst birth rates we've ever seen in the last year, but no one's talking about it. Over in China, on TikTok, instead of showing their children videos of men in skirts dancing, they show science experiments and encourage children to aspire to be astronauts instead of influencers. China and Russia are investing into oil. We're obsessing over which types of cows fart the right way. Our countries are vastly different. But if China and Russia wanted to destroy the West, they would encourage the media to keep talking exactly as it has been over the last 10 years. Here at RCR, I'm wanting to do something different. I'm wanting to see a change in New Zealand. It's why what I talk about is quite opposite to what our media talk about. Because we need to have real conversations that aren't being had here in New Zealand. And today, Alistair and I, my wonderful co-host and producer are going to be talking about what is actually happening in New Zealand. Why do so many people distrust the media? 
and why are they trying to censor our independent voices? Alistair, thank you so much for joining me today. Well said, Chantel. Very well said. I couldn't agree more, to be honest with you. And and it's true, the trust in the media is at an all-time low at the moment. And when you look at stories like that one about you the other day, um, you can't help but notice why there's so little trust in them, to be honest with you. It's very low on fact. It's very, it's high on... They're always telling us that we're talking about conspiracy theories. Well, what you just talked about there was a conspiracy theory, wasn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. It's things that they chuck out there that have no fact, no basis in reality, but they want people to believe it because it suits their agenda that they're trying to push. And for that particular article, the agenda was don't listen to Chantal or other independent voices, just listen to us. And the other thing too that I think that that, was, that story was all about was about telling people keep quiet don't question the system because this is what's going to happen to you if you speak up and i think that's for the last three years at least um that's what's been happening hasn't it we've just been abused we've been talked down to we've been called names all of those different things um and i think one of the things that i'm really looking forward to talking about today is actually highlighting these examples and and being able to talk about them, using evidence to talk about them. And I think one of the things that we're going to see when we talk about trust in the media is that there is a, a real feeling amongst people who don't trust the media that there is a bias, that there is no objectivity, there is, there's no balance in the stories. And I think that's one of the things I'm excited about doing today is actually showing a little bit of the balance, talking about what the media has been talking about and putting it alongside what the surveys of, of trust in the media actually say. Um, so, you know, it's about, I think that's, that's what our chance is here on RCR, is to actually think about these things and walk the talk, so to speak. Absolutely. Really invest into the people of New Zealand and help them see what's going on and know that you're not alone. And it was interesting the amount of messages I got from people that saw that particular article and they said, congratulations. <laughs> they said, well done. I had people donating to us <laughs> as well. People were saying, that's amazing. They said, you got on the front cover. Imagine how much you're getting under their skin. <laughs> and then they said, how much would it have cost you to try and get on that cover? You know, if you'd had to pay for that, it could have been in the hundreds of thousands of dollars and they just gave it to you for free alongside some pretty nice photos of you. <laughs> So you know what, it hasn't been at all that bad. And to be honest, this last year has been one of the greatest years of my life. We have in such an incredible community that's only ever growing. I get to do this amazing job where I get to say the truth and what I consider the truth and my own opinions and thoughts and feelings. I don't have anyone trying to shut me up or censor me. I don't have any boss that I've got to answer to. I just get to really enjoy this time that we're in and bringing forward difference of opinions and different thoughts and ideas and it's been truly wonderful the relationships that have been built over this last year around New Zealand so every time I see these articles I'm just so excited that we are still producing stuff that's important enough that I need to be on the front cover you know like what a great thing that they find that what we're doing is achieving enough that we still deserve you know some sort of recognition for it because at least that means that we're cutting through to more people that they don't want to hear our message i mean it's been really interesting last month or so you've been on billboards all over the country for rcr you've been on the front cover of um the new zealand herald 
you're all over the place right now. But I'd like to ask you before we get into it is why do you want to do it? Why do you want to put yourself up for all that, that kind of behavior, that kind of treatment? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not for fame and fortune <laughs> because you don't get, I mean, I might, I might get infamy, I guess, more than that. And you definitely don't get fortune doing this. I think it's because there is a right and a wrong. And I was always taught that from when I was young. And even though when I was young, I was definitely a very different person. I think over the last few years, I really saw good and evil in the world. And I thought, I feel like I've got a skill set where I can talk very well, I can remember facts pretty well, and so even though I'm not some sort of genius at all, at least I can bring conversations to New Zealand in a way that makes sense to everyday Kiwis, just like me, and and finally we can start having conversations that they don't want us to have, and I just wanted to expose more of what's actually going on in the world so that people could start to make decisions for themselves. Um, And it's, yeah, it's been phenomenal, and the reaction's been phenomenal, and so I'm really excited that we did make that first step, you know, me and Jake and you and everyone else that's come along for the ride, that we made that bold step to go, we're doing this, we're going all in, we're putting our faces to it, (laughs) the whole families are going to get involved, Uh, and it just is what it is, because it's something that's so important for this country, and I knew that we could do something that would actually have an impact, and every day I'm starting to see that impact growing um, and starting to entrench itself further. And I think that that's a really positive, exciting thing for our country. One of the things that I think is so important for us is actually having these conversations is because we're highlighting the importance of freedom of speech. You know, every time you get shut down or you get smeared like in, in these certain cases, um, it's just highlighting more and more why freedom of speech is so important. I remember saying to a friend of mine at the height of the madness when he rang me up to argue with me all about why I didn't want to take the experimental injection. Um, I, I ended up having to say to him, you know, if you want to win this argument, you're going to have to allow freedom of speech because you win it by having a good argument. You win it with facts. You win it with with truth. And we don't seem to be getting that, you know. And you, when we look at what's happened with you with with this kind of thing, all you get is abuse for it. There is no arguing the point. There is no discussing each of the points rationally. And so that's why I suppose I ask, you know, why do you put yourself up into to doing that when you know that you're not going to actually get a rational discussion from it? Yeah, I guess when you know something's the right thing to do, you do it even though it's difficult, right? And that's just where we're at at the moment. It's just the right thing to do. It's not the right thing to let people bully and coerce someone into decisions they don't want to make and then gaslight them into pretending that they wanted it all along or that they had the choice when they know they didn't. So all of this has been wrong, you know. I don't believe it's right to try and get children into positions where they're coerced or bullied or convinced that they should be cutting off different parts of their body. I think every child's born exactly as they should be, and that's wonderful, you know. I don't think we need to be trying to put children through procedures that they don't need. I think we need to be reminding adults that they're meant to be there to protect children. And so there's many, many different topics that I'm very passionate about. And it largely stems from just wanting to try and help our country remember what's good in the world. You know, what, what really matters. And I think these topics that we're talking about today, um, if we start to get into what we're here to talk about today, what the theme of our show, and it's about the trust in the media. It's about 
um, where where the media has sunk to, why we are sitting here today on RCR talking about this. I mean, it, a year ago, two years ago, we wouldn't have dreamed of doing a, a radio show. Either of us, I doubt it. Um, and so, you know, why, what gap are we filling? And just last week, there was a Horizon poll came out. It was part of, it was a, it was reported on the results from a survey done by the AUT's Centre for Journalism, Media and Democracy. Surveyed 1,120 people. And what it found was some really startling results. First of all, only 42% of New Zealanders trust news most of the time. This is down from 53% in 2020. So over the last four years, since the, the, the whole COVID madness started, there's been a drop of 11% of trust in the media in New Zealand. To the point now where at 42%, that makes people that trust the media a minority. I always I, I laugh about this because I remember when we went down to Wellington with the convoy, we were called the fringe minority. And uh, now the people that actually trust the news in New Zealand is a minority. But even more startling is that 69% of Kiwis actively avoid the news often or sometimes for their information. These are incredible figures and it just shows that the news media has dug themselves into one hell of a hole. Yeah, and we see that actually with the closure of Today FM. You know, that really came down to the financial decision of this station is not providing enough value for people that they see worthy in it to basically invest their time, right? Because time is money. And so the public didn't want to invest their time listening or watching the show. The show didn't get the figures it needed, so it didn't make the money it needed. And so therefore it had to close suddenly. Uh, And I mean, I saw that even online. I think their Facebook page only had about 7,000 people on it after a year. And they had invested hundreds of thousands into their marketing. So you look at that and you go, why did the station fail? It had people that were apparently popular, people that had been on the news, people that got the interviews with the big names, you know, the Jacindas, the Zelenskys, all of that type of stuff. And yet the station couldn't survive. And I think it comes down to people are tired of hearing one-sided biased news. And I think today, today FM actually did a little bit of a better job than other stations, but it still didn't go and try and interview people that are more controversial or more interesting here in New Zealand. And so the reality is, when you've listened to one side for years and years and years and another station comes out that's effectively trying to get up a, a piece of that same market, how are you going to succeed? You need something that's different. You need something that's more interesting. You need something that's offering people more value than what they had to offer. And these stations at the moment are going to see a further decline. Well, when you look further through these survey results, what you find is a lot of what you're talking about there, I think, you know, the first thing that I noticed when you look down down the list is how the trust ratings for all the different media brands in New Zealand have gone down. And it's incredible. All the major ones... Radio New Zealand, TVNZ, News Hub, New Zealand Herald, Stuff, News Talk ZB, all the major brands, they've all lowered in double digits their trust ratings. RNZ is down 14.5%. News Talk ZB down 14%. Stuff down 12.3%. It goes on and on. They're all double digit decreases. And 
then you look a little bit further down and you see the reasons people don't trust the media. And I want to really point this out because we're going to keep coming back to this because the media don't seem to get the hint. The reasons people don't trust the media, according to the survey, 82% say that it's because the news is biased and not balanced. 80% say the news is a result of political bias. 73% say the news is too opinionated. 62% say there's a lack of transparency. And the last one on the major list, 61% say government funding means you can't trust journalists. And I know that we've been talking about this ever since before the parliament protests, yet it doesn't seem to get addressed. Do you think that there, there's something in that the, about the government funding? Yeah, I think there's absolutely something in there about the government funding, particularly the Public Interest Journalism Fund. But I think the number one thing for me there is the bias, because these journalists pre-write, they, they, have an, they have an idea and a concept of how they want their story to sound, and then they'll go and interview someone to get that little soundbite or that little one-liner that they can then inject into the story to prove their point. So, and I've, I've had this happen time and time again where I've been interviewed by people, they'll ask you all these questions, they'll get to one that makes their eyes light up, you'll tell them something and they're like, okay, great, yep, we're done, perfect. Because they just had that one little line that they were after that they can then use because they already have their bias narrative drawn up. And so all they're wanting is for you to say anything that could reaffirm their perspective. So it's, they've lost how to be objective. And people are getting tired of that. And you'll see that. And I mean, another interesting point was the political bias itself. It's not just bias, but it's political bias. It's swaying really greatly towards, and we know in New Zealand that it's left. So when when you're craving something that's not left-leaning and you're going through the paper or watching the news and all you can find is more left or radically left, of course people are going to want to find another opinion somewhere. So if you can't provide any balance to the piece that you're doing, you're going to lose viewership. Uh, and it seems the journalists that I hear speaking online, even in podcasts and whatnot, they still don't get that. They don't get that people are tired of bias, they're tired of the political bailout. They just want unbiased facts. And that's getting harder and harder to find each day. And it's not just a New Zealand problem. I mean, we've also, um, in our research, looking into this over the last few days, um, there was a another survey that was done by the Pew Research Center in the United States that came out last year. And in that, they talk exactly about what you're talking about there, about balance. Apparently, only 44% of journalists in the United States believe that both sides of the story should be given equal coverage. Now, when I started in the newsroom, when I went through journalism school, that was a given. I would have expected that figure to be 99% or 100%. It would, would have been sacrilegious to say, no, we, we don't have to give balance to both sides of the story. But now, only 44% of journalists in the USA said both sides of the story should be given equal coverage. More than half of the journalists in, in the United States believe that they don't have to be balanced. I find this this is really really incredible information to to find out. There's another research study done by the New York Times. Um, it's a New York Times Siena poll, in that 74% of the poll respondents said that democracy is currently under threat, and of those who responded that it was under threat, 59% said that the major threat to democracy was the mainstream media. I think. 
it just shows more and more that that actually that balance that you're talking about is a real big problem that the media have and they're just not wanting to acknowledge it I suppose. Yeah and I think that that part was interesting as well because when they say it's a threat to democracy this week we had I believe it was four newspapers put out a sim a story simultaneously saying that it's a threat to democracy people that they deem miss or disinformation before the election. So what that story is effectively saying is if you do not believe what the mainstream media or the legacy media are telling you, and if you want to hear voices that are different to that, they want to silence those voices before the next election because they believe that's a threat to democracy. Now, I don't remember the last time that someone said it was a threat to democracy, freedom of speech was a threat to democracy, that wasn't a totalitarian dictator. But the problem is, is that this is what they're teaching the children. And this is what they're teaching the young and upcoming journalists. I was speaking to someone the other day and her sister is studying. And she said that they were given topics to write about. One of them included the jab, one of them included trans rights and a couple of others. And they went out and they got one side of the story, the pro side of the story. They went to go and get the opposing view. And they were told, no, no, there is no opposing view for this. <laughs> There's no opposing view. There's no opposing view. Oh, whoops. How is that possible? Yeah, well, it's not possible. There's always an opposing view, but the reality isn't that there isn't an opposing view. The reality is that they don't want there to be an opposing view. So when you are teaching the up-and-coming journalists that there is no opposing view, this one view is the only thing that is right, your one source of truth, you are teaching them not to think critically. You're teaching them not to break down any person, not to break down a concept or an idea. You're teaching them to toe the line, and that's how they'll get their funding, and that's how they'll be able to stay in the legacy media forever. And that's the real problem that we're facing here at the moment. It's how do we educate the younger generation on how to think critically and how to be independent and not to have group thought? Well, that's another point that has come out in one of these other surveys that we found over the last week or so researching this subject is from the Acumen Edelman Trust Barometer. This is, this is a study that was put out by the World Economic Forum. Um, it was launched at the 2023 version of the World Economic Forum and on the panel that presented it was our very own Helen Clark. Um, and it talks all about uh, trust in New Zealand, not just for the media, the media was, is included, but also for business, government, NGOs and the media. And of those four pillars, the media is the least trusted. And it really, some of the statistics really show a theme of like what you're just talking about there. One of them that pops out straight away from what you were just saying there, 58% of Kiwis agree that people in this country lack the ability to have a constructive and civil debates. That's essentially what's what's happening when when you have people writing stories, smearing someone and warning everybody off because nobody wants to have these conversations anymore, do they? And we've been seeing it for the last three years. You're not the first person to have a story written about you like that. Yeah, absolutely not. And I think that it's interesting that Helen Clark was on that panel because she actually blocked me this week on Twitter. Oh, did she? Yeah. Yeah, so she posted the article and I, I found it quite funny. So I retweeted it and I, I said uh, some, something along the lines of, um, well, she clearly doesn't check for mis or disinformation when reposting articles. I said, but great to know that we're getting under the skin of the elites. And um, she promptly blocked me. 
But this raises the further question because a lot, a lot of the part of the conversation around um, trust in democracy and how institutions are being um, untrusted by people, by the public, a large part of that conversation is driven by the Disinformation Project here in New Zealand. And the Disinformation Project is headed up by someone called Kate and then you've got another guy, Sanjana. And they have been on rampaging blocking sprees alongside Helen Clark. And this is something we're seeing on the left end of the spectrum in Twitter at the moment. And they block people en masse, but yet they say that they need conversations. And we recently found out it was because of this app called Block Party. So they can block tens of thousands of people at a time and make sure that they never hear the other side of the story. And journalists are doing it as well. So when you're curating this echo chamber for yourself, how on earth can our country move forward in a constructive way? And I, I believe that we're going to see further results coming out from more surveys and more studies that show that we are going to continue leaning in a downward trend unless people like that think, actually, what's more important, my echo chamber or the free speech of the country? Well, would you have, uh, um, would you have one of those people onto this show to talk to them, do you think? Oh, absolutely. But when I asked Kate in, in person, because I went to see her talk, I sat front row, when I asked her if she'd speak with me, she shut down the, the talk, it was at the end, she shut it down and, and left the room and refused to. But I would absolutely speak with her. She's also never reached out to me to ask. Um, I'll reach out to her again. <laughs> but I know it's been very difficult. It's very difficult for anyone to talk to Kate Hannah that's not on the radical left side of the agenda here in New Zealand. I know the platform's been trying to get hold of her for a long time. Um, she consistently refuses. She was meant to show up at a talk at a, I believe, some kind of festival, some kind of earth festival the other day that we know, I know a few people were at, and she refused to come. So because she heard that there were going to be opposing views there. One of the things about about her is that you actually travelled to Dunedin to talk to her, didn't you? Yep. So it's not it's not as if you've been avoiding her. No, <laughs> actively sought her out. Did you pay to go inside that that talk? Yeah, I did. I don't know how much it was. I think it might have been like twenty dollars or thirty dollars, something like that. Um, I think up in Wellington they had another talk that I I know a few people went to that they charged four hundred dollars a head for. Um, and it was an, a wee echo chamber talk between her and Paula Penfold and a couple of other people. But I mean, I wasn't trying to hide from her. I wore my cap, which I pretty much live in when I can't be bothered doing my hair, and I sat front row. So I, I purposely sat front row because I didn't want to try and hide. You know, I wasn't out the back wearing a hood, <laughs> trying, trying to blend onto the distance. Um, and I, I listened to her whole talk and they said we had to wear masks. We were wearing our masks. And then when it got to the end, they did a and a session. And I waited to see if someone else would put their hand up and they didn't. And then she said she wanted to hear from someone a bit younger. So I put my hand up and I was the first question. And what question did you ask? I said, how? I said, hi, Kate, I'm Chantal Baker. You've put me in a lot of your research. I said, how do you qualify something? And, and this is me paraphrasing because I can't remember word for word, but about a bit, bit like this. And you can probably watch my video on our YouTube and see the exact question. How do you qualify something as disinformation? Because you've said that I'm pro-Russia, which is completely false. So is that not disinformation and defamation? How do you actually qualify it? And what did she answer to that? Oh, she wouldn't answer it. <laughs> okay. So you can't define it. No, you can't define it. And they won't refer to anything you said and they won't refer to any studies. They'll just say that you are disinformation and that's how they work. That's how they operate. You see, I see a couple of ma there's three major things that come to mind when you say that. First of all, is that um, I believe that you've gone out of your way to try and talk to these people. 
over the last few years. Um, there are a whole bunch of people who went all the way to Wellington to try and talk through these issues with their representatives, and that never worked out. Um, I also think that one of the biggest problems with the disinformation project, which I know I have, and I'd love to hear the answer to, and I don't think anybody's ever been given the answer to this, is how are they funded? Um, are they funded from the New Zealand government? They say that they're not, so how are they funded? Um, there should be some sort of transparency with a group of people who are being quoted all of the time in New Zealand. They're setting the agenda right now, and we're gonna go through a couple of examples of that today where they're setting some really topical, well, they're, they're setting some, they're setting the agenda of what the media is talking about, and yet we know nothing about them. And then, of course, that brings up the topic of public interest journalism and the way that journal media in New Zealand is funded by the government. Um, we're not funded by the government. We're not funded by the Kremlin. We're not funded by the Chinese government or anything like that. Um, yet there is millions of dollars being poured into that side. And I don't think it should be an issue for us to actually question that. No. And what's interesting about the disinformation project, and this is a question I actually asked Kate when I was down there, because she said, I said, um, I said something about the government trying to sense people or not. She said, oh, well, I wouldn't know about that. I'm not the government. And I said, yeah, but you're funded by them. And then she said, am I? And I said, yes. And then she said, oh, I'm more funded by my husband. Now, she actually lied right then because they were being directly funded by the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, which is Jacinda Ardern's office at that time, um, for producing multiple reports. And we have that now in an OIA, an Official Information Act request. So these people don't want you to know that they're connected with the government. So they were, you had that confirmed, at that time they were funded by the Prime Minister's office? Yep. And are they still today? No, I don't believe they're still today because that was for some reports at that time. I, but again, they, they get their funding right now through, kind of, they say, like different organisations and NGOs and whatnot. So you'd have no idea who funds them now. I think they, they split from the University of Auckland and I think that was to also try and get away from OIAs because if you OIA them, they'd then have to hand over their emails. We've had multiple OIAs now into some of their content and their conversations with the Prime Minister. Um, those Official Information Act requests have been denied because they say it's on the safety. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So they, they don't have to be transparent with us. <laughs> they can just say, oh, no, someone sent me a letter I didn't like. And so now I don't have to be honest and transparent with my work for the Prime Minister. So they have to be one of the only departments they get to pull that. Yeah, and one of our one of our examples that we're going to talk about in a little while is that they present all this information, but then they they hide behind the thing saying that they they can't possibly show you the proof because it's it's too dangerous to have a look at, or it's it's too horrible to have a look at, and it seems to me it's the same with their funding. But Moving on to the, we'll, we'll come back to that in a little while. Um, the public interest journalism, you know, I don't, I don't see what the problem is for us to question this. When we went into all the, into 2020, they, the government instituted a 55 million dollar public interest journalism fund to support New Zealand's media. This is straight from their website to continue to produce stories that keep New Zealanders informed and engaged and support a healthy democracy. The $55 million package will be made up of $10 million for 2020 and 2021, 
25 million for 2021 to 22 and 20 million in this current year 22 to 23. The Public Interest Journalism Fund will provide transitional support to media organizations as the sector evolves in a way that ensures the long-term sustainability of New Zealand's media. So according to that, I'm going to guess that this is transitional support, so it's not supposed to continue after this year. I'd expect that it's going to be extended though, because when you look through, um, and we've got OAA requests that have supplied a lot of this information, haven't we? And when we look through it, it seems to me that a lot of this this money is going to actually employing people. They don't seem to be standing on their own two feet when you look through this these figures, do, do they? Yeah, so uh, many of the journalists and also many of the different TV shows, I know Jack Tame's TV show, um, what is it, Q&A, I think they are funded up to a million dollars per year and they have been over the last few years. You've got Newsroom's The Detail podcast in 2022 received $800,000 worth of funding, which is around 2500 per episode. So there's about 322 episodes, which is quite a lot. Newsroom's Investigate series received $336,000 worth of funding for six 15-minute episodes, which is around 56000 per episode. And again, Newsroom's Climate Change Interview Series received $40,000 of funding for a package of 10 episodes, which are podcasts and articles quoted to $4,000 each. And again, News Hub Discovery received 700000 nearly 700000 for 10 stories per month, equating to around nearly $6,000 per story. You've also got jobs, 95BFM, a targeted role at 32900 per year. Allied Press Partnership Editor at 145000 The Coconut Digital Producer at 75000 Global HQ Digital Editor at 100000 Newsroom Sub Editor at 91000 The Spin-Off Deputy Editor at $105,000. Alistair, do you want to run through some of the funding for stuff? Yeah, look, the... As you look through those figures and you're thinking these people are on a pretty good wicket, they're they're not they're not scrimping and saving on these, are they? When you look at um, stuff, stuff received funding of one point six million dollars for their Auckland community roles. Their obligations of these journalists were five stories per week, so one per working day. Um, this went for nine journalists and. I believe that these these figures are for two years, okay? It doesn't state it very clearly, but from reading through the information, I believe that it's for two years. So that $1.6 million for nine journalists comes to, for each journalist, $90,000 a year they're getting. Um, they, but that's not all. You know, they stuff also received funding for their potiaki roles. There were uh, eight roles of that. Um, again, five stories a week, so one story a day, and they were each getting around 72000 Of course, when you look through all of the OIA information, the exact figures of what they are being, each of these roles are being paid is redacted, so there's no transparency on that. I suppose there's, um, there's privacy issues, which you can probably understand. So we're just taking here the figure, which is $1.15 for the Potiaki roles, and dividing it by... Uh, eight roles, eight jobs, and over two years. So that came to $72,000 for each one. 
Um, and then there's another one as well uh, for five roles. So, you know, we're talking about filling up a whole newsroom with government funding. And then maybe you take us through the NZME one, through the Open Justice series. Yeah, and I think what's interesting to me about all of this is every single time they take government funding, they claim that it won't influence their editorial experience at all. So they say, no, 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 it doesn't matter if you give me millions and millions and millions of dollars per year, and that's paying for the majority of their staff, I shall not be influenced. But it clearly does, because when you look in these applications, this NZME one, they have to do certain things which have got nothing to do with journalism at all. They're purely political. In this particular case for NZME, they're all have every one of the journalists that is being paid through this are having to attend racial bias workshops. I wonder if that talks about bias towards anti-white sentiment. Do you think it would? No, it says it's all about upskilling reports in Te Rio, Tikanga Māori, and ah, treaty principles as well. Now, what does that have to do with journalism, really? Nothing outside of the fact that they want to. And, and it's interesting when they say treaty principles, because it is very rare that they're talking about the actual treaty, and it's quite often they're talking about someone's interpretation of the treaty. And those two are very vastly different things. And I think we've got to a point in New Zealand where, and I think the pendulum needs to swing. Right, I think the pendulum is constantly swinging, whether it comes to racially divisive topics or whether it comes to women's rights, men's rights, trans rights, whatever it is. I think the pendulum is on a constant swing and it'll always go too far in either way and then people will protest or they'll talk about things and it'll swing back. And I think we've gone in that direction against particularly white males here in New Zealand. And Marama Davidson said it best when she said that violence stems from white cis males, which is a lie according to New Zealand statistics. So this is the problem. It's gone so far that now you're blaming groups on their ethnicity rather than on rather than discussing the actual problem. And it's exactly what people were fighting against when they were fighting for their rights. And so I think that this is a wider conversation that, again, these journalists will not be allowed to have because their funding is conditional on their bias around this topic. And that's the problem. It's, it's a really interesting subject because apparently one of our worst statistics that we have is the prison populations of Māori in both men and women. And we've got some of the highest in the world, if not the highest, for those groups um, in our prisons. Now, how are we going to solve that problem? And it is a problem. It's no doubt there's a problem. They, they should not be that highly represented. If they're not that highly represented in our population, they should not be filling up our prisons as, at, at a much higher rate. So how are we going to solve that? If we can't talk about these issues, if we're, we can, if the only way we can talk about them is within the framework of what the government says our obligations to the treaty are. The problem is, at the moment, what they'll say is they'll say every single problem that's currently facing Māori or Pacifica or any other community outside of white is colonisation. And so colonisation is the big bad wolf that everything rests on. But the reality is... Back in the 1970s, the rates of violence were significantly lower and you had plenty more women, particularly Māori families, were still intact in the 1970s. Yet as the years have gone on, that's dropped off significantly and that does, does have an impact on children and does have an impact on family violence as well. 
And so we need to start looking at these root causes and saying what is the best possible way for a child to be raised into an environment that is positive for that child so that they do not end up becoming an offender as they get older. And then what are the best ways to try and rehabilitate these offenders and how do you teach them real skills? Because quite often people have come off benefits and other problems or they've come out of gang violence. They need to learn real skills. So are our prisons actually educating people in the ways that they need to be? Are we getting people outdoors enough? What is our rehabilitation actually like? And how can we work on that progress that in that process, that entire system? So if we're just blaming it on someone's colonization, you're taking away and you're disempowering those people to actually better themselves and better their own families for their own future. And that's the key issue that we need to start looking at here in New Zealand. How can we start building people up, teaching them about personal accountability and stop blaming the world or the race or anything else that's going on for their own life choices? And it's that reflection, you know, you don't necessarily, I don't think either of us would claim to know the answers to all of these things. Um, these these are opinions we're talking about, but um, you need to have that ability to self-reflect and I just think when I look through all of this stuff about the funding, about um, about the the trust in the media, I just keep coming back to that. The, those those issues that that survey brings up, that eighty two percent of New Zealanders don't trust the media because the news is biased and not balanced. Um, there's political bias. It's too opinionated. There's a lack of transparency. Um, there's government funding says that you can't trust journalists. These are the opinions of people and they're not being approached in the slightest because there are these th this framework around the, the implementation of this public journalism fund which doesn't allow for us to actually have these conversations. If we do have these conversations, if Operation People or if RCR goes along to New Zealand On Air and tries to get some of this public journalism fund, if we don't sign up to those, those, those political biases that they talk about, we won't, we won't get funded. Exactly, and then they'll complain if you've got independent people funding you and they'll accuse you of being funded by Russia or China because it's just everyday citizens and everyday people that are wanting to fund you because they see real value in what you do. Hey guys, we are going to take a quick break and we're going to be back with an interview with Sam Blanchard who is the director of the new film just released called Silenced. It's a documentary about censorship of the media here in New Zealand, censorship of independent voices. Sam is a journalist and she brings great insight into what has really been going on here in New Zealand over the last few years. So we will be back with that after the short music break. This is Reality Check Radio and you're listening to The Chantel Show. RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. This is the Chantal Show and you are listening to Chantal and Alistair. We are about to interview Sam Blanchard. Sam is a journalist. She's also the director of a new film just released here in New Zealand, a documentary called Silenced, which is all about the censorship of public voices here in New Zealand and how the media have managed to curate their own echo chamber over the last few years. Samantha, thank you so much for joining me to talk about the film you've recently released, Silenced. And I understand you've got a previous history as a reporter and journalist here in New Zealand. But what is the real reason that you were kind of driven to make Silenced? Um, so rewind a couple of years and uh, in the years 2020 and 2021, and I was doing the research again, applying the skills that I learned in my degree 
to holes that I could feel initially um, were, were in this, the story that we were being told. Um, I could see that there were, there were sub-stories that were not breaking through. I could see that there were questions for me that were not being answered. So I set out to answer them myself. And, um, you know, it's not, you don't have to be a rocket scientist um, to, to be able to go and find the answers these days. It does take some time. Um, but, you know, I was trained to find these answers. I was trained to look for peer-reviewed studies. I was trained to um, look at the journals. And um, and I could see, first of all, I could feel, and then I could see that pieces of the story were missing. And I remember one evening here in my house discovering yet something else that I deemed to be in the public interest that was missing and walking around my house going, okay, I'm ready. I, I will step back into this field of journalism again, having I've been out of it for 10 years. Um, but I really felt like there was a right of reply that was not being fulfilled. And I felt if I have these skills, then it's a responsibility of mine to step up. Um, you know, I was tearing my hair out, but the, best way through it is to do something about it and so it actually started with a small publication here where I live um, which is in print and it's just a little one that goes out fortnightly but um, the idea of the documentary came around and I just started to make it I didn't even know what I was making initially but just started interviewing people that I thought could be key to the story with a camera and it started to unfold and make itself known to the world. Why do you think journalists over the last few years decided to go down a different avenue? Because it seems like many of them were not reading the science, they weren't asking questions. If anyone did ask questions, they wanted to make sure that they didn't have a voice, especially not in a public atmosphere. So why do you think that real divide happened within the journalistic industry? I think, okay, so I think the confirmation bias that... Um, you get when you're surrounded by a group of people who are parroting the same narrative is constant. Like, I think newsrooms have become like that. They're potentially, this is speculation. I've not been in a newsroom for a long time. But I imagine that they're so deep within this, their story now that they confirm each other's bias all the time and reassure each, each other of being on the right track and of what they're supposed to do. I am sure that the fear had a big uh, impact on that in the beginning as well, that this effect of fear on people in general, but um, of journalists who are on the front line of that, as you might put it, going to those um, podium of truths every day given by the government and hearing this messaging over and over again big threat solution, big threat solution. There is an effect there that drives a message home deeply. And um, if you are hearing it firsthand, then perhaps it's more easy to become truly convinced of that. Um, 
what happened to the questions though i have it from um somebody that i interviewed during the documentary that in the beginning questions were being answered and then they seemed to fall away because of a growing group think i have heard as well that this term group think is um, has been perceived by one journalist in the industry that that is what is happening um, in journalism right now that there is a or in the news that there is a, a a group think and at this point to think outside of that mainstream thought puts their livelihood in danger immediately and it has done it would have done for a long time at this point you know they those questions, unless very delicately um, and tactfully, uh, are, are too long overdue now to be to be asked. They're in a really sticky situation. Well, the, and that's a problem, isn't it? Because you had a lot of people like myself who are asking questions relatively early on. I mean, kind of, but not really. I think lockdown happened in March. I think maybe I made my first video. I actually don't know if it was even that year or if it was the next year. It might have even been the next year. Um, I'd have to go back and check. I think everything's such a blur over these last few years now. But I remember coming out and just asking really basic questions, you know, around the last few years and going, what are we doing and why is no one questioning this? And it seemed like we were constantly told you always meant to question what you're told, you meant to reference what you're told, and yet our media weren't doing that. And so that's why I started doing what I do because I found that there was a real gap and I thought Kiwis are not asking questions and rightly or wrongly true. for any answers. You should be able to ask as many questions as you want and that should be unpacked and it should be done in an honest and upfront way. And I remember speaking with the TVNZ journalist actually about this because she rung me for something. And I said to her, I said, they used to have open debate on TV. You used to actually get panels of people that would have different opinions and they could have discussions. Where has that gone? In the COVID debate, that just didn't exist. But you did a really great interview with Simon Thornley. And so you spoke with Simon Thornley and then you said that you had to retract it due to his legal team coming forward and saying he was unable to put it in. Is there anything Simon or anyone else said that really surprised you during the filming of Silenced? Hmm. Um, unfortunately, I can't go into what Dr. Thornley had to say because of that legal advice and, and wanting to protect him on that. but. I so hope that he's able to talk in the future. Um, something that surprised me from Peter Williams is that he he had Sue Gray lined up to be on his program um, early in the morning. It was a nine o'clock show and she was lined up to be on at 10 past nine. Now, when you work in radio, um, the minutes are so taken care of. I'm sure you're working this out now in your, in your endeavours now. But um, they'd booked her to be on the previous night. She was in the High Court taking the government to task over the legality of that vaccine rollout. Huge case, very important. And to have the lawyer on that's taking the government to task on that is, is an obvious main story for that morning. And he was told by management five minutes before he was to go on air that he wasn't allowed to have Sue Gray on. Now that's bizarre, bizarre. And I mean, not in radio, you're so down to the minute, not only is it crazy that they would try and pull his main interview from the beginning of his program, but I mean, the why of that, why would you not have the lawyer on your program who is taking the government to task over 
this vaccine rollout because not just because of the legality, but because of the issues that they were raising. Again, big questions that were not being asked in the public sphere were being taken to the High Court and being asked there, but again, they were being suppressed. <laughs> and it just happened again and again, and I, I just I find that in particular bizarre. Um, another example is uh, Dr. O'Reilly's story. I mean, she's just your classic GP. If I was to have a family doctor, that's who I'd want as my family doctor. And yes, I'd want her to advocate for me in exactly the way that she was trying to. Her admission that the punishment that she received, suspension, was simply trying to ask questions which they would not answer. Suspension is usually reserved for things like manslaughter or fraud when you're a doctor. This is crazy, and we know this from New Zealand doctors speaking out with science, but I don't know that people have seen the voluntary undertakings and the the um, the documents that the medical council would have doctors sign, basically saying voluntarily or get suspended, comply or get suspended, stop asking questions or get suspended and lose your livelihood. Yeah, it is blackmail, but it's also completely absurd that these doctors are not allowed to question something that's brand new to the market. Yeah, exactly. And it just it still baffles me. And honestly, my hope is that this documentary reaches that it baffles some new people because everybody should be baffled by that. And that's what it was made for, really, is to try and bridge this gap of people who can see the craziness and those that can't that they've not been allowed to see how crazy this is and this is a really silenced is a gentle introduction to the crazy <laughs> and it's not <laughs> it's crazy because it's so unjust it's not crazy dangerous and Yes, it's uncomfortable knowledge, but Jodie Brunning, the sociologist who appears in the documentary, talks about how we need to make space for uncomfortable knowledge in New Zealand if we are to avert ignorance, which is an entire study in the field of sociology. Mm. Then we need to acquaint, acquaint ourselves with the uncomfortable knowledge. And... Um, and it is uncomfortable and perhaps even scary in the beginning, but you work your way through that to another, to the other side of being better informed and from there we can make better moves for this country. This is the scary thing, <laughs> saying that the only way to move through adversity is if two parties sit down and can have a conversation, but yet they only platform one side for that conversation. And I notice this more and more. I mean, even on TV, the very rare times that I do watch it, they might bring someone on. And I think Posey Parker is a very good example of this. They brought on, I think it was Brooke Van Welden, although I could be wrong on that, but they brought on this lady to speak about Posey Parker and she was more positive of Posey Parker, but they made sure they had a panel of people to debate her. But yet they would bring on people like Chanel Lau and he just had the platform for as long as he wanted to rant and rave and say everyone's transphobic and all these things that were untrue. But he was given as much time as he wanted to have his say 
and yet the opposing voice is dealt a completely different scenario. And I think that even those more of those kind of subtle ways of censoring voices is actually something more New Zealanders need to wake up to and need to be more aware of. Because even if they do give another side the, the opposing view, they do it in a way that's very manipulative. Exactly. And that is yet another example of this subtle censorship. That's what silenced shows, is subtle streams of censorship in various different authorities um, and conversations or lack thereof. St. John's tour this week has been calling for more legislation to censor more people here in New Zealand. Why do you think he wants legislation to make and to ensure censorship? The establishment is trying to protect itself. And the only, you know, one of their greatest tools is censorship. And people need to look at what previous regimes have used censorship as their tool. They are not good regimes. We don't want to go down this line. And, you know, I, it's, as I say, it's, it's uncomfortable information to come around to. But the opposite of that is, is, is ignorance. And there's a quote that, People have been re retweeting or yeah, retweeting and sending around that finishes at the end of the the um, production, and it is that censorship is the child of fear and the father of ignorance. And the only way through to truth, the only way to judge what is true or not, is the court of public opinion. You cannot leave that up to any authority because one person's truth is not necessarily somebody else's. But in this case, when it has big implications for the government and our authorities, if they are proven to be wrong, then how the hell can we put the ministry, can we put in a ministry of truth that is run by our government? It doesn't make sense, and people need to realise this. People need to make up their minds for themselves, but that is only going to happen when they're given all of the information, and they can still decide if they like to, to, to side with the government narrative. But if people have not been exposed to the other narrative, then how can they make a true and honest opinion on all of that information? Have you and seen the latest Rise and Fall that came out around the Western media? Yeah. Yeah, what did yeah. you think about that? Because that's such a drastic change from how, how many New Zealanders did trust media around 10 years ago. I believe that the trust in media has dropped around 48%, which means the majority of New Zealand actually does not trust their media. Yeah, so it's been on the slide. It's been dropping about 3% every year since they've been started that study. And it's like, it's well below half now. Um, and what I found really sad is that Radio New Zealand, you know, our flagship trusted radio station has slipped the most, has slipped 15% nearly. And what I found shocking about that is it's quite, it's quite a lot more of a drop on last year's trust in that brand. Um, but it is a gentle, it's a, it's a steady, continued downward slide 
Um, and I wasn't surprised by the reasons. People are recognising the imbalance. They're recognising the bias, the political opinion that is coming through our newsrooms. Um, and it's just not at all surprising. I don't think New Zealanders uh, are stupid, but this, this media treats New Zealanders like they're stupid. And that's the bizarre thing. They don't give them an intelligent conversation. And when you watch American media, uh, yes, I think that it's sensationalized, but they do get on experts that are really diverse. They get on people that have a wide range of experience. They get on people that know different you know, terminology and they have more interesting talking points. Here in New Zealand, we seem to regurgitate the same tiny pool of people when it comes to our media. And I wonder if, that, if that's purposeful. I wonder if that's because they know that this little group of people will ensure that the narrative remains the same, whereas perhaps if they extended that pool out a little bit wider, they would start to get a variety of perspectives. Yeah, and it would complicate things and it would get uncomfortable. Ooh, um, but something might scale back a little bit. That's right. But um, Jody Brunning, during, the, during Silenced, mentions the, the term dumbed down twice. And that is exactly what the media has become, in my view. If, if they've really simplified, uh, particularly our COVID response, um, and then gone quiet on it mostly. Um, and I think people are definitely sick of the same experts coming back over and over again with the same messaging. I'm sure those experts are sick of themselves, I would have thought. Um, yeah, and if you take, for example, the seven o'clock slot on TV that used to be occupied by John Campbell on Campbell Live, and prior to that, it used to be occupied by Paul Holmes. When I was a kid, it was Paul Holmes. Paul Holmes, and this was a current affairs program. The seven o'clock slot was was perfectly positioned to come off the back of the news and then go deeper into current affairs, and that was really healthy for information in New Zealand politicians and. Um, different figures of authority were taken to task on live TV. And now we have magazine-style shows. That 7 o'clock slot has been totally sold out for um, silliness and, um, I don't know, some, something light, which is fine, but it's not in terms of being able to go deeper, expecting to go deeper on the issues of the day on live TV where politicians are expected or, or authorities of figure are made accountable in front of the whole country. That was really powerful back in the day. Um, and and we don't have that anymore. Um, Q&A, I think, in terms of TV, we've got Jack Tame on a Sunday at 11 o'clock in the morning. So we have one weekly current affairs program that is of a similar format to that nightly um, interview uh, format. So, you know, we, we're really missing the, the long form, the opportunity to go deeper. And, um, and, and even when that opportunity does come around, there's, you know, we can go back to Jack and, as an example. He had two interviews with Jacinda Ardern last year and I watched one of them with great interest because it took place months after the protest at, um, at Parliament. And he took her to task over the cost of living, I believe it was, in the first few minutes of that interview. And then just skated through our COVID response as if it was nothing. Yet that's what occupied Parliament for 23 days. That's why people 
were up in arms and came from all over the country to have their voices heard. And the journalist that has two interviews with the Prime Minister will not take her to task over that. You know, they've never been raped over the coals and by a journalist, by good, hard, gritty questions. That's just, it's gone on this front. I found it interesting when Jacinda in her final speech said she used to hate question time. (laughs) Like she hated it. And I think it's because a lot of that is live. It's not scripted. Because she would love when they would run and do these big pieces on her for 45 minutes, an hour, like, who is Ardern? The tribulations of Ardern. But yet, Mm. when she actually had to go live, she would often say, you know, I... Uh, what is it? I reject the premise of that. It was so yeah. famous, you know, just this the, these con- this constant gaslighting of the public of your perspective doesn't actually mean anything to me. All I'm focusing on is my perspective and I refuse to see any middle ground. And it's fascinating and it just shows where we're really at as a country. Hey, Samantha, thank you so much for joining me. And I really encourage any listener out there or any watcher out there, if you can go to see Silenced. I know it's on Rumble, isn't it? Do you have a silenced.co.nz as well, Samantha, or is there another website? Exactly. Yeah, www.silenced.co.nz. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much, Samantha. Thank you, Chantal. All right, Sam, it's been great to hear from you. Thank you so much. And for anybody that is interested, you can go to silenced.co.nz and watch her film out now all about media censorship in New Zealand. Today, we are talking about trust in the media and in particular, the New Zealand media. And it's a subject that is really close to us here at Reality Check Radio and my own company, Operation People, because we've all seen how the media doesn't appear to represent us anymore. So is this a takedown of the media? Nope, it's just an attempt to try and pull the problem into focus. And so today, that's what we're talking about. And so far, we've talked about the Horizon Trust in Media poll that came out last week that shows less than half of New Zealanders trust our media and seven out of 10 Kiwis actively avoid the media. And we've also looked into the reasons why, according to the poll, which states that the problems are around apparent bias in the news media, that they're too opinionated, and government funding has led to a lack of trust. And if you've just joined us, we interviewed Sam Blanchard, the director of the new film Silenced, which explores the issues of censorship that have crept into New Zealand over the past few years. So now we're going to talk about how the media sees this problem. Where do they place the blame and what fixes do they have? And unfortunately, the answer is apparently legislation and a very, very scary story about constructing fake stories to create a narrative that will make that possible. But before we get into that, let's look at how the media reacted to the news that trust in them is at an all-time low. I think the really interesting thing about all of this is when you go and look through all of the stories that the media have actually written about this horizon poll is that not one of them approaches the reason why there is a lack of trust in the media and it's written in the poll we've talked about it um i've I've tried to bring it up at least twice so far um you know it's because new zealanders see the news as biased and not balanced it's because of political bias it's because it's too opinionated it's because of the the public journalism funding um, and uh, none of these, none of these news media stories which talk about the problem, actually ever get to what New Zealanders think about it. And it just makes me think that's half of the problem here, is that reporting in New Zealand is so shallow. 
And it's, it's really interesting, Chantelle, about how the news media actually reported on this Horizon poll result last week. They talked about it in various publications, and it just seems to me that they all seem to try and avoid the actual reasons. Um, you look on Media Watch, turning off the news, 9th of April by Colin Peacock for Radio New Zealand. In this story, um, he talked about how the survey showed that trust in news was on the slide for a fourth year in the row. Um, but then he asked the question, is it because we've had too much bad news for too long? Or are we just doing it badly? But that was the last time in this story that he actually used a little bit of self-reflection. Instead, he was quoting um, one of the people that I believe must have done the research because he's from AU, the AUT Center of Journalism, Media and Democracy, a guy called Dr. Greg Treadwell. And Mr. Treadwell spoke about it was that the fall in trust in news is connected to the fall in trust of all social institutions. Um, he says that because we've gone through a pandemic, a cyclone and all these things, you know, emotionally people want to take it out on someone, he said. He also think, says that I think that what people say they trust and what they actually trust are two quite different things. Um, so basically what he's saying is that people are just whinging. They're, they're, they're not they're not really not trusting the media at all. They're, they're probably just whinging. And I think that it's a real sign of another sign of why there is so little trust in the media. Because when you look into a story like that and you're thinking, we're going to see some analysis here. And the answers are actually in the survey itself. We see why New Zealanders don't trust the media. But he doesn't approach, none of these people approach the topic at all. No, and he talks about the trust in social institution is dropping and that's why the trust in journalists are dropping. But it's why is the trust in social institutions dropping? It's dropping because there is bias and there's political bias and they lack balance in their views. And the same can be said for nearly every single institution, universities. It's more like an indoctrination camp than an education camp. And this is the problem. People are seeing this. And I think the rise of social media and, and what's interesting, there was a story here where a lady, Sarah Sparks, who's a communications consultant, shared an anecdote around her 21-year-old daughter's generation saying that they do not trust the government at all. And I think that's because with TikTok, with Instagram, you actually see a lot of alternate news. So you see people sharing a lot of views that aren't on the mainstream media. You see people question things. You see people sharing their concerns. You see people that have said that things are going on in the industry, that they've complained about it, that they're being gaslit, that things are being hidden. So when you've got a really open platform and multiple open platforms like that, and young ones are constantly on those more than they're watching the news, they're seeing diversified opinion. Whereas when you're watching the news, you are not. And so that naturally will lead to a result of less trust in all social institutions, journalists and whatnot, because they're seeing political bias and they're seeing other news that isn't as biased. So it's just about having perspectives outside of an echo chamber. And, I, and it seems to me a positive thing that these young people are not trusting the government and are looking for news outside of the media and are, and are questioning. I think that's a great thing for a younger generation to want to do. I think another clue is what you just said there. You mentioned gaslighting. And there's one of the other um, stories that we came across was a letter from the Wellington editor. We will not contribute to hateful discourse. And this is by Caitlin Cherry, the editor of the Dominion Post. 
And she was talking about the what we discussed on our last show, which was all about the Albert Park mob riot, um, the trans activists silencing Posey Parker at, at Auckland's Albert Park. And so what she's doing in this story, this opinion piece that she wrote, is just saying, we've got lots of letters from everybody, but they're very abusive and we're not going to contribute to this story at all. Now, I understand the argument and I get what she's saying. Um, we will not contribute to hateful discourse. She wants to draw a line underneath it. However, the problem with that, that I would say to Caitlin, is that you're gaslighting us. We all saw the footage of those people storming the bandstand. We all saw the footage of the security guards surrounding Posey Parker, and we all saw the footage of her being bundled into a police car for her own safety. So the hateful discourse was at that event on that day. Yet she's telling us, oh, no, we're not talking about it. We're not going to contribute to this discussion at all. And that's yet another reason why people don't trust the media, because we can see it with our own eyes. But it's actually just all about gaslighting us. It's trying to tell us what you see with your own eyes is not what's really happening at all. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a shame because she talks about things like she accuses someone of telling her that COVID was made up by government governments in a conspiracy to control us. And then she talks about that person not knowing their history about Watergate, but then immediately says that she is not a fan of reading nonfiction books and instead <laughs> says she listens to podcasts. See, she's following alternate media herself if she's following podcasts more than she's following history books. And what I would say is, yes, there are some conspiracies that are blatantly untrue, but there's other things which are theories that have a lot of fact in them. And so then you've got to dissect, okay, how much fact is in this? And then how much truth is on top of that? And so this requires, it's a nuanced conversation. And it's not often this black and white, everything's a conspiracy, so I'm never going to believe anything. And until the government tells me it's real, it's real. And you could look to Matt Hancock, Matt Hancock and the lockdown files for that, where he openly admits that they used COVID to further their own agenda. Now, he's not saying they made up COVID to, f to further their agenda, but they did use it to further their agenda. So then you could say, well, that's not actually a full conspiracy. That's maybe 20 or 30% conspiracy and the rest of it is fact. So why aren't we having those kind of balanced conversations? Well, none of those COVID stories are coming out at all, are they? I mean, they come out every day. We find out about them. Remember the um, the, the health minister from from Germany also came out recently saying that he always knew that the, the, the slogan safe and effective for the vaccines was vastly exaggerated. Um, why aren't these things being talked about in our news media? Instead, as she's tried to point out there, she's tried to say it's all conspiracy theories. Well, if you're not reading non-fiction books, Caitlin, um, you're probably not reading histories. You're, you're re and if you're only listening to podcasts, there is a much lower uh, bar on factual content for podcasts than there are for non-fiction books. I like how you said Caitlin. <laughs> I was like, oh, Caitlin's in trouble. <laughs> Alistair's on her case now. <laughs> but, you know, we have a discussion about it. There's nothing wrong with having a discussion about it. And I, again, we extend another invitation. Caitlin, come on and, and discuss this with us because we went in depth on that particular subject and talked about it a couple of weeks ago. And um, I can't see why we couldn't have a civilized conversation with you too, Caitlin.
Yeah, we. I mean, we, we cover a lot of topics that people send me nasty messages about, but it's still important to cover them and it's still important to talk about them. So you can't just silence everybody. But I think that this is what the left is becoming more prominent at is just silencing anyone, whether it's using block party on Twitter, whether it's publicly through using their own media platforms, whichever way it is, they just do not want to hear the other side because they want to be able to label you, lock you in the closet and leave you there until they you die because they'd rather not hear your opinion whatsoever. And this leads me to another point, which which is Sanjana Hutter who says the answer to all of this is, of course, government legislation. <laughs> to silence us. Oh, don't we love it? Alistair, take it off. Well, well this, this was the beginning uh, last week, or is it earlier this week, actually? This is the beginning of a really interesting story which shows, which highlights, which shines a light on the media practices in this country. So what Sanjana was saying was exactly what we're talking about with that story that that Caitlin's Caitlin's opinion piece is that because of all this rise in disinformation and conspiracy theories and so on, they're, they're really worried about what's going to happen in the lead up to the elections. And apparently we need legislation. We need legislation and laws to stop us talking about the things that they're not, they don't want us to talk about. I wonder what those things are, though. Yeah, so he says um, vitriol and conspiracy theories are running at higher levels than even during the parliament protests. And he says there's no policy, there's no framework, there's no real regulatory mechanism, there's no best practice, and there's no legal oversight. Now, just keep in mind, this is coming from the same man who had his, I should say, rise to fame by being a citizen journalist with his phone in Sri Lanka. So he didn't want to be legislated when he was doing it, but he wants to be legislated now that he's on the government side. Hold on, hold on. He used to do what you you what you did at Parliament. Yeah, through protests against their government. Wow. <laughs> you couldn't make these people up. It's a do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> he obviously tells everybody about that on his Instagram feed and everything like that, does he? Yeah, well, you'd think he'd start out by saying, well, I was actually in the exact same position as Chantal, just probably on a slightly different political spectrum. And so it's fine for me. But the minute that it is a younger woman that I disagree with, she should be silenced. We need the government involved. We need the police involved. Wouldn't mind the military stepping in as well. <laughs> Whatever we need to make sure she doesn't have a voice. Sounds wonderful. And the other great thing about Sanjana is that he never never actually provides any proof of any of this, does he? No, but he loves to use the word genocidal. He says it's at genocidal levels. It's like, well, Sanjana, you seem relatively dramatic at this point. So are you saying that it made you cry twice this week? Are you saying that it made you feel a little bit more upset? Are you made? Are you saying that a couple of your friends texted you more than they normally would have about something? Like, what is genocidal according to you? Is it that people sent 10 more posts on Telegram than they normally would have? We need some context to these outlandish accusi- accusations because at this point it just seems like whenever this person wants to, we the media give him a platform and he gets to have a tantrum and we're all apparently meant to follow along with it and legislate free speech because Sanjana is upset. According to this story, he says that the details of his analysis of violence and content from the Posey Parker incident is so confronting that he can't share it. And he claims that the Broadcasting Standards Authority guidelines wouldn't allow him to share it. It's that bad. And 
I can't help but think that when he uses that word genocidal, does that, if I was to say that, or am I going too far here? I don't think so, because, I mean, you have to, well, you have to remember, back back when people were talking about the unjab, they were saying that they wanted to deny medical treatment to them. That was a real conversation that was happening in our media. I would say that is genocidal. You were talking about actively allowing people to die or assisting them to die if you're making sure that they do not get access to what they need. Well, I suppose it's more still allowing them to die. You're talking about allowing people to die because you disagree with their vaccination status. That, to me, is genocidal, far above anything anyone is posting on a sub-thread on Reddit. There are also people that have brought up the, the term about genocidal in that kind of conversation, and they've ended up being called anti-Semitic because... Uh, like people talking about the Holocaust and so on. Um, I, I, I don't understand how he can get away with talking about genocidal when, I'm sorry, but that's really taking it far too far, Sanjana. And what you're really doing is creating, you're actually inciting hatred. But however, he does have the media on his side. And something which was really, really scary happened over this. On the 10th of April, um, on Radio New Zealand, on the Radio New Zealand website, a story came out saying, please urge anyone, including the Rainbow community, to report threats and violence. There is no author byline put on this. And the story goes on to say in its first line, police are urging anyone, including members of the trans or rainbow community, who are being threatened to contact them. This is in direct response to what Sanjana was talking about uh, two days before, also in Radio New Zealand, talking about genocidal problems. In the second line, it talks about how online extremism since the Kelly J. Keene Minshall event, the person known as Posey Parker, came to Aotearoa, there has been a marked increase in online hatred directed at the trans community. What they were doing was they were setting up a story all about how the police were requesting members of the rainbow community to come forward because there had been a lot of hate directed at them and they were worried for them. The police were worried for them. But it turned out that wasn't actually the case, was it? No, that wasn't the case. So this is what I like about people like Sean Plunkett over at the platform alongside his... Uh, what would we say, producer, Ben Espinar, because they do dig into stuff and I appreciate that in anybody that wants to dig into what this legacy media is trying to push down our throats. So they uncovered that the disinformation project said that levels were going genocidal, but they never provided any evidence. They called for election protections, legislation, rah 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 Ben Espinar, the producer from the platform then emailed the police to ask about Radio New Zealand's story about the pleas to the rainbow community to come forward and report all this hate online. It turns out that the original RNZ email was actually to the police and they said, do you want the rainbow community to report crime? To which the police gave a very standard response saying violence or threatening behaviour including any involving hate, hostility or prejudice around faith, sexual orientation, identity, disability and age as well as gender. If anyone has information regarding images or anything else to contact us. So Radio New Zealand contacted the police fishing for a specific line which is a thing we've talked about earlier 
they had a story they wanted, they fished for the right line from the police, when the police gave them just enough they could write a story on, they create a sensationalist headline and ta-da, they have their genocidal levels. And they've got apparently the police backing them up on that. And then, of course, because of that, then the New Zealand Herald and News Talk ZB and, and TVNZ and everybody else jumps on the bandwagon as well. And suddenly it becomes a story when there was no story there whatsoever. There was never any story. No, it was a non-event. It was an absolute non-event, but it, this tends to the weaponization of the police as well. And this is what I think, it's the political weaponization of the police, because if the police had seen the story in RNZ, they should have immediately come out with a statement and said, hold up, that's not actually what we said. We said anybody should come forward that's experiencing hate, and you came to us for that story. But I think that because the police have been weaponized to a certain extent on one side of the political spectrum, they won't do that. They won't actually even stand up for themselves. So is this inciting hatred, do you think? Does this reach that level? It seems to me that it is. When you're saying it's at a genocidal level and you're openly lying about things, you're creating disinformation because you're doing this with an intent to cause harm, which is harm towards the big group of people that were trying to protect Posey Parker and stand up for her right to speak and say that they were unhappy watching the images of that event. You're taking that and you're weaponizing it and then you're saying that those people are at potentially a genocidal level. So you're raising the threat of a country between groups up to genocide simply because they have different opinions and you don't like it. So let's go back to the main thrust of this, this show that we're doing today, and that's about trust in the media. Um, how can this, when they're seen to be doing these things, when they're caught out, and I think this is wonderful journalism by um, Sean and Ben, I think they've done an amazing job. Kudos to them. And it was so simple in the end. All he did was write an email to the police and he got the answer. Um, and I just can't help but reflect on what we're talking about here today is that how, how do the media expect anybody to trust them when they act in that way? There was no truth in that. They were, they were just baiting, weren't they? There was, that was nothing more than the actions of a troll. Yeah, it wasn't someone that wanted a genuine opinion. It wasn't someone that wanted to ensure that the New Zealand public were getting the truth. And so the question then becomes, if they fished for that story, how many others have they fished for? If they fabricated that one, do they often fabricate others? If we have a New Zealand media company that is receiving money from the government, should it retain its funding if it's found to be openly deceiving the New Zealand public? Yeah, this is the company which just only a matter of months ago, they, were, they spent uh, tens of millions of dollars on trying to forge a marriage between them and TVNZ and the taxpayers paying for all of this. And then they're deliberately misleading us. And that story has not been retracted or anything. They're just trying to ignore what the platform what the platform exposed aren't they yeah it's just oh no i didn't i didn't say it <laughs> shut your eyes boys fall in line <laughs> do you know it kind of reminds me of the penguins off madagascar i don't know if other people have seen that but it's like oh yeah boys it's just it's just this band of they're so determined to get their way that like logic reason doesn't apply but i think the interesting thing is they'll say that about people in the opposite way but i feel like they would get very upset at any story that's twisted or manipulated by anyone in the alt media but yet when mainstream media does it no one is allowed to talk about it or hold them accountable 
accountable. One of the great things about this, though, and I think Ben and Sean have actually proven this, is that you can't get away with this stuff anymore. Everything is on the internet. The internet, you can't delete it. It's it's there forever. I think Elon Musk uh, was talking about this recently. And talking about Elon Musk, to take us into the break, let's have a listen to Elon Musk recently talking to the BBC. And this interview is really incredible. It just came out yesterday, right at the same time when we were preparing this show. And I think it's just perfect because what it shows is a mainstream media outlet trying to seed the story about online hate. He's talking to Elon about there's since he took over Twitter, there's an increase in the amount of hate speech. And then he talks about unnamed NGOs like the Disinformation Project backing him up. But when Elon actually asks him for an example, he can't give it. And what I like about this mostly is that it's just a sign that people are seeing through this kind of charade, this kind of play acting that they use to seed issues and then try and fix the so-called problem with things like legislation by taking away our freedom of speech. And that's essentially, at the end of the day, what they're actually trying to do. They're trying to take away our freedom of speech because they want to censor the internet so that only their narrative is seen and heard by people. And Elon called them out here. And it's really funny listening. And I just hope that we all take note of it and we all know what to do next time when we're in that position. So take a listen and then we'll go to a music break and we'll be back after that to wrap up the show. I mean, I would only just add that, you know, we have spoken to people who, who have been sacked that used to be in content moderation. And, and we've spoken to people very recently who were involved in moderation. And they just say they just, there's not enough people to police this stuff, particularly around, um, particularly around hate speech. Um, in the company. Do, is well, what hate speech are you talking about? I mean, you use Twitter. Right. Do you see a rise in hate speech? I mean, I, I, but just a personal anecdote. Like, what do, do you I don't. Personally, my, uh, for you, I would see I get, I get more of that kind of content, yeah, personally. But I, I'm not going to talk to, talk to the rest of, for, for the rest of Twitter. So you see more hate speech personally? I would say I would see more hateful content in that, in that. Content way. you don't like or, or hateful? What do you mean to describe a hateful thing? Yeah, I mean, you know, just content that will solicit a, a reaction, something that may include something that is slightly racist or slightly sexist, those kinds of those kinds of things. So you think if something I, is slightly sexist, it should be banned? I, n- no, is I'm that not, what you're saying? I'm not saying anything. I'm saying. Well, I'm just curious. What you, I'm, I'm trying to understand what you mean by hateful con- content. And I'm asking for specific examples. Um, and if and you just said that if something is slightly sexist, that's hateful content does that mean that it should be banned well you've asked me you've asked me whether my feed whether it's got less or more it, i'd say it's got slightly more that's why i'm asking for examples can, right. you, can you name one example i, I honestly don't need I, I, honestly you i can't don't name I, a single example i'll tell you why because i don't actually use that for you feed anymore because i, I just don't particularly like it you said actually, you, a lot of people a lot of people are quite similar i i, I only you said you've seen more hateful content but you can't name a single example not even one I'm not sure I've used that feed for the last three or four weeks, and I. Well, then, I how did it, you see that hateful content? Content? Because I've been, I've been using, I've been using Twitter since you've taken it over for the last six months. Okay, so then you must have at some point seen that you for you hateful content. I'm asking for one example. Right, and you I, can't give us a single one. And, and, and I'm saying, I, I, then I, I say, sir, that you don't know what you're talking about. Really? Yes, because you can't give me a single example 
of hateful con content, not even one tweet, and yet you claimed that the hateful content was high. Well, that's a false. No, what I claimed was lied. What no, no, what I claimed was uh, there are many uh, organizations that say that that kind of information is on the rise. Now, whether whether it has a give me one example. I mean, I, right, and Literally if you look at something one. like the, the uh, Strategic Dialogue uh, Institute in the, U in the UK, they will say that. So, they, Look, people will say all sorts of nonsense. I'm literally asking for a right. single example, and you can't name one. Right, and as, as I've already said, I don't use that feed. But let's, well, then how let, would you know? Let, that I don't you, think this is getting anywhere. You literally said you experienced more hateful content and then couldn't name a single example. Right, and as I said, I that's absurd. I haven't, I haven't actually looked at that feed. I then how would you know this hateful content? Because I'm saying that's what I saw a few weeks ago. I can't give you an exact example. Let's move on. RCR with Chantel Baker, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. You're listening to The Chantal Show. And today, Alistair, my producer, and I have been talking about censorship. We've talked about my story last week in The Herald. And we've talked about a wider narrative about how the media is no longer trusted by most New Zealanders and how the media doesn't want to talk about how they're not trusted or take any responsibility for that lack of trust. We're talking about how media funding has reached huge levels through the Public Interest Journalism Fund and how a new film, Silenced, has recently come out detailing the censorship problems that contribute to the overall problem of censorship here in New Zealand and how Radio New Zealand got caught in a lie by the platform trying to create an alibi for them. The key drivers of distrust are contained in the Horizon poll, which came out and stated that 82% say they do not trust the news because it is biased and not balanced. 80% say the news is the result of political bias. 73% say that the news is too opinionated. 62% say there is a lack of transparency in the way the news media operates. And 61% say government funding means you can't trust journalism. By not approaching this, by not admitting that they might be causing a little bit of a problem, the media is just digging itself into a hole that it will not be able to climb out of. So, let's get into the cuts and trust of New Zealand media by Tim Murphy, who is the co-editor of Newsroom. Alistair, take us away. Why should we care about what Tim says? Yeah, I, look, when I read through all of this stuff, one of the things which... I realized as I was looking at all of them and I'm analyzing and I'm, I'm trying to see the other side of the story uh, is that when you read through these stories that they're so shallow they don't first of all they don't even mention any of those reasons that you just read out which is straight from a horizon poll telling us why they're not trusted anymore why New Zealanders uh, what, what are the reasons New Zealanders don't trust them? And they're there for everyone to see. They're in the poll results. Yet nowhere in any of those stories that we've detailed here today actually mention any of those things. And you just realize that the standard of journalism um, is it's very shallow at the moment. And I say that with, um, I realize that journalists have a lot to do. I realize they're chasing more stories than they ever did um, back in back in the glory days of journalism. I also realize that newsrooms are a lot more sparse these days. They're, they're, journalists are a lot lighter on the ground, so to speak, or thinner on the ground, so to speak. So I understand that. But um, I don't think, I think there's, there's only a, 
a certain amount that we can talk about their financial their their woes without actually starting to look at how much they've built those woes for themselves so you know you talk about this particular story that you're bringing up you know they're talking about the demise of today fm it's talking about the financial woes of media businesses you know here's a really interesting part of the story is that at nzme which is the publisher of the new zealand herald they've stopped giving out free copies of their printed edition of the paper to their journalists that was just standard in my day in a newsroom. You know, you, you got a copy of the um, the edition so that you could cut out your stories and put them in your scrapbook or, or whatever for when you were going to look for another job, I suppose. But this is how bad the economic realities of these are. Sky TV have cut 170, 170 jobs. North and South magazine is back on the, the market um, to be sold. Today FM has closed down. All of these... Um, these, these are massive financial problems that the media have at the moment. Yeah, and I can understand why they are desperate for government handouts. I really do. TVNZ profits were down to just $4.8 million in the first half of 2022 to 2023, down from $15.2 for the same period in 2021. So they need this government funding in order to stay alive. And you can say, oh, well, that prof- profit's pretty good, but not really, not for a major TV news organisation across our nation. And so I think what this comes down to is people aren't tuning in, they're tuning out. They don't have COVID to rely on anymore. And so what what will they do? They either need a massive new problem to come across to then drive up numbers, or they're going to have to drastically change the operations because this whole narrative of keeping people fearful, only projecting one political side does not seem to be working for them financially. And how many more stations or papers will we start to see going under over the next few years? I'd also like to throw in another thing into this discussion is that it's a lot of this is their own fault because we know that we're now going into a period of recession. We've got massive inflation. We've got cost of living crisis going on and so on. And the reason for all of that is because the government were printing money and throwing it around like they were in a strip club at 3 a.m. Um, and the media, here's a home truth for you. The media never asked the government to account for any of that. Now that's their job. So now that they're all crying poor, um, I'm sorry, but I've known this ever since I came out of university and went into the media myself is that the first industry that gets hurt in these in recessions is the media industry because all of the advertising dries up so if you're going to uh, let the take all of that free money from the government and not question any of it i'm sorry it's it's uh it's kind of yeah i think we kind of asked for it's a matter of time but then how will this change will this mean that rather than having media that's at least slightly independent it'll be all absorbed under the government and it'll be fully government funded and anything that doesn't come from the government will be illegal is that what they're going to try and move towards in the future it's very possible we could see that happen here in new zealand wow well i i don't see how that will be good for any of us um i'm trying to look for some sort of positive spin on that one um i suppose they might be well funded 
<laughs> the jobs are pretty uh, pretty firm. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, half of Wellington is just propped up. More than half probably is just propped up by government funding. Um, and you see that if you look into the job roles people do in these individual suburbs, 100, 120, 150K plus in most of the suburbs for about 80 to 90% of the people. And majority of that is government jobs. When Another thing that comes up when I think about this just now is that this is one of the reasons why that story was written about you because they admit in that story that you got millions of views while you were in Wellington they dream of having millions of views I'm just looking here at our um, uh, our notes here NZME have 113,000 paying digital subscribers and 96,000 print subscribers they're jealous of you. <laughs> well, I don't have subscribers like that um, because they shut my pages down. <laughs> I had massive numbers and then they just worked with government and got me shut down based on false premises. But I think, I don't know if it's jealous per se. I think it's more fear. I think they're driven out of this fear that people like you and I, Alistair, and other people that may be listening to this, will be driven to a point that they will not need the media anymore. And now I still do see value in some media. I still do see value in stories and social stories and knowing what's kind of happening around the world. And I still do find value in that. But what I don't find value in is these heavily edited, heavily biased pieces that have an outcome of destroying people simply because they don't agree with them. What I am interested in is what's happening around the world, what's the most unbiased version, what are the facts, and then who is having a real in-depth conversation about it in a way that I can actually relate to. And I think that most New Zealanders are the same. We're relatively passive people. We don't need a huge fight all the time. And we certainly don't like what we saw the other day and with Posey Parker being here and these elderly women being punched repeatedly by these males and then having all the media run to the defense of these biological males and no one cared about the women that were being assaulted because as much as the media trumps on about women's rights it doesn't your rights mean nothing if you're standing up against them in any sort of capacity and that's the real concern that we're facing as a country at the moment the media will be right on your side as long as yours on you're on theirs and so the whole trans conversation, they're trying to pretend that it's a conversation of everyone that doesn't agree with what they saw at the Posey Parker event wants trans people to disappear. They don't want trans people to exist. And that's not true. The vast majority of people want spaces for everybody, but they don't like seeing people assaulted just so you can get your point of view across. And that's what they don't like. And this is what we saw, I mean, within days of that Posey Parker incident, a trans shooter who was a biological female shot up a Christian school, killed three children and three members of faculty. And instead of caring about those children and protesting for the rights of people, such as those little children in that Christian school, to have their religion without being harassed and assaulted, people were out on the streets protesting for trans rights. And they were saying your comments on Twitter justifying the killings saying that, well, if trans people weren't backed into such a corner. Now, you cannot sit in front of me and tell me that little children need to die for trans rights. 
because I think that's an absolute lie. I think these little children did absolutely nothing. The members of faculty have done absolutely nothing. And yet you have these crazy, mentally unstable human beings that are being promoted and encouraged to harm others because their opinion matters more. And that, to me, is genocidal. They always lecture us about the real-world consequences of online disinformation. Yet you, what you're talking about there is these are, these are real-world consequences um, that have happened because of this, this narrative that they've tried to build, isn't it? I, like, I want to go back and I want to reiterate what you just said there. I don't think any of us have anything against the trans community. What we do have, uh, the problem that I have, is watching that Posey Parker event and number one, seeing a 70-year-old 70 lesbian woman being punched in the face repeatedly. And I believe that woman had her um, eye socket broken. I don't want to see that. I'm sorry. I think that is hate. Um, and then to be gaslighted by our media. And what we've talked about today is about the reasons why there is so little trust in the media. And one of those big ones that we've talked about is a lack of balance and it is it is a problem across the world at the moment with um with journalism journalists believe they're activists these days for some reason and uh i think we before it goes too far you know you've just talked about what happened in nashville there's also the story about riley Gaines being assaulted by trans activists at the san francisco state university being locked in in a room for about two or three hours after being um after being threatened and, and run out of the her talk that she was given. These are real-world problems that, that are happening because of this. And if the media wants to regain its trust, it needs to start covering both sides of the story. There is no other way for them to do that. That's what is so important about freedom of speech. The only, and I said this at the beginning, beginning I'll say it again, the only way that you can win an argument is by championing freedom of speech because just by silencing somebody all it shows is your inability to argue the point all it shows is your ignorance and i think we this is this is what reality check radio is about this is what operation people's about this is about us actually trying to start that conversation again isn't it absolutely and i would like to close off the Chantal baker show today by saying this if you are someone who's tuned in because you want to capture something about us that you don't like that you can write about or talk about, or if you're just here to listen to a different opinion and just hear us out, get in touch because we would love to have you on this show. We would love to have a conversation with you. We're not trying to destroy you, your credibility or your life. We're actually trying to make sure that conversations can be had in New Zealand that need to be had because no one is extending olive branches and everyone is trying to bring out their swords. And that's the exact opposite of what our country needs right now. What we really need is understanding and healing. And what we don't need is people screaming at each other more on Twitter, on Telegram or anywhere else. So I encourage you, if you're listening to this at home, extend an olive branch to something or someone that you've been thinking about this week. And if you're listening to this and you disagree with us on any topic, get in touch and let's have that conversation. If you want it off the record, that's fine. If you want it on the record, that's fine. We would just love to have some more conversations with people who really disagree with us because we think that that is what's actually going to solve many of New Zealand's problems. People aren't all horrible, awful, dangerous human beings. 
The vast majority care about New Zealand and just have different perspectives of what will heal it. This has been The Chantal Baker Show. You're listening to Reality Check Radio. RCR with Chantal Baker. Reality Check Radio.